Our text today is the Holy Gospel, uh, John chapter 3, the account of Jesus' encounter with uh, Nicodemus the Pharisee, especially uh, verses uh, 14 through 17. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God loved the world so that he gave his only Son the lost to save that all who would in him believe should everlasting life receive. Today we celebrate the festival of the Holy Trinity. We confess our faith in the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and yet one God. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. Today we use the Athanasian Creed as our confession of faith, as is our custom on Trinity Sunday, the Athanasian Creed, which has more than 140 characters and therefore is beyond the attention span of most Americans, but not Lutherans, not Lutherans. We can handle it once a year, (laughs) once a year. It is actually a beautiful confession of our faith in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The creed was not actually written by St. Athanasius, but it was named after him in honor, in recognition of his tireless work in defending the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Athanasius was one of the key players at the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., that council which ultimately hammered out the Nicene Creed. And at that council and thereafter, Athanasius fiercely defended biblical doctrine, especially against the Arians, the Arians who taught that Jesus was, well, kind of like God, but not exactly God, really and truly God equal with the Father. Athanasius defended the true faith. And for his trouble, he was actually exiled five times by various Roman emperors who didn't want him rocking the boat with all these trivial doctrinal issues. And he was was forced to flee for his life on six other occasions, angry mobs and such, so that he came to be called actually Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. He could have certainly saved himself a lot of trouble if he had just adopted that 21st century answer to all doctrinal issues, whatever. But Athanasius would not compromise, and he could not compromise, because he recognized that this triune God is in fact the God of our salvation, and there is no other eternal life is at stake. Our salvation flows from the very nature of the triune God. It was the heavenly Father who in love sent his Son to be our Savior. 
The Son lived a perfect life of love, and that in obedience to the Heavenly Father laid down His life for us. The Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, is the one who brings us to faith and keeps us in that one true faith. God loved the world so that He gave His only Son, the lost, to say that all who would in Him believe should everlasting life receive. Aaron Hernandez was a very uh, remarkable football player. He had a $40 million contract to play football for the New England Patriots. But he was fired from the team after being arrested on murder charges. He was later convicted and sentenced to life in prison. This year, April the 19th, right after Easter, Aaron Hernandez took his own life in his prison cell. The Massachusetts correction officer who discovered his body also saw the word John 3.16 scrawled across his forehead in red ink, and beside him in the cell was a Bible which lay open to that same verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Michael Bloomberg is a 75-year-old billionaire, former mayor of New York City, and according to Forbes, the eighth richest person in the world. Over the last couple of years, he has given interviews to the New York Times and then also on 60 Minutes on TV. And in those interviews, actually, uh, Michael Bloomberg admitted thinking a little bit more of his mortality as he ages, but he especially talked about all the millions of dollars he has spent on environmental initiatives and uh, anti-obesity uh, and anti-smoking efforts and also fighting the National Rifle Association on gun control. Very proud of his achievements and his spending millions of dollars in those areas. And then uh, Michael Bloomberg said this in these various interviews, I like what I see when I look in the mirror. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm going right in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Fascinating to me, that in our increasingly secularized, materialistic, sex-obsessed, money-obsessed, celebrity-obsessed, sports-obsessed culture, there is still this strange interest in eternal life, heaven. Isn't that an odd thing? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus the Pharisee. We, of course, know about the Pharisees from the New Testament, especially from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus tells us that great parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where he describes the Pharisee going up to the temple to pray. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. That was the Pharisees. They kept the commandments. They were the righteous people, outwardly. But Jesus would later say, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Maybe that's why Nicodemus came to Jesus that night. Externally, all was well. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, influential, highly respected in the community. But inwardly, maybe that was something else. You see, it's kind of hard being a Pharisee after a while, maintaining that veneer, that external appearance of righteousness, and yet all the while having to deal with your conscience and that gnawing sense of guilt on the inside and that perception that perhaps all is not well with your soul and those hidden sins that could be revealed at any moment. And so you work hard to try to stay ahead of your next door neighbor Pharisees in doing good deeds. And you try to make up for your sins with enough good works to kind of balance the scales. And you try to convince yourself that finally you have done enough. But how much is enough? You can never be sure. I went to do a guy who was a, a runner, and uh, he always ran hard, and he always ran, ran fast. But the strange thing was, he didn't really run for enjoyment or for fitness or even to win races. He actually ran to punish himself. <laughs> he had been through a brutal divorce, which had done great harm to himself and his ex his kids and his parents and everybody concerned. And sometime later, it kind of dawned upon him that it was actually mostly his fault. So he ran. He ran till it hurt. And the more it hurt, the better. He ran to punish himself to pay for his sins. The only problem is, if you try to pay for your sins, you will pay pay and pay and never get done paying. Nicodemus came to Jesus out of the night, out of the night of works righteousness and hopelessness and despair. Out of the night where you really can't see the truth about yourself or God or anything else. Nicodemus came to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Of course, what Nicodemus did not quite realize yet at this point was that he was in the presence of God. Not just a teacher come from God, he was in the presence of God himself, one-on-one, -on -one, just Nicodemus and God. <laughs> Nicodemus and Jesus, one-on-one. -on -one. I'm struck by the fact that so often, particularly in John's Gospel, we see Jesus spending very significant time with just one person, and sometimes the most unlikely people. Here in John chapter 3, it's Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who just doesn't get it. John chapter 4, it's the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman who had had five husbands, and the man she was now living with was not her husband. John chapter 5, it is the, uh, it is the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda who had been paralyzed for 38 years. 
John chapter 9, whole long chapter in which we see Jesus interacting with the man born blind. And so it goes all the way to the end of the gospel. Jesus rises from the dead and he appears first to Mary Magdalene, one-on-one in the garden right outside the tomb. Mary Magdalene, who mistakes him for the gardener until he speaks her name, Mary. How do we explain this? All this uh, one-on-one time, Jesus spending all this time with single individuals. I mean, surely Jesus was a busy person. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, he had created the whole world. He had now come to save the whole world. And you think you have a lot on your plate. Whoa, Jesus surely had a lot to do. And yet he spends significant time caring for just one individual at a time. How do we explain that? I believe it was St. Augustine, another early church father, great defender also of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, actually has his own window somewhere here at, at uh, Advent, I think, uh, St. Augustine window. It was St. Augustine who said, God loves each of us like an only child. He loves each of us as if there were only one of us to love. And so it is today, in the quiet of this hour. He loves the world, and yet right now, Jesus speaks to you, to your heart. His love for you is so great. He came for you, shed his blood for you. He couldn't possibly love you more. Jesus spoke that night with Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he said, unless one is born again, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What a mystery is here. How the Holy Spirit actually works in holy baptism through water and the Word on each one of us to bring each one of us to faith so that each one of us uniquely, individually, is a child of God for time and for eternity through the waters of holy baptism. Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit really in our baptism is bringing to us the blessings that Jesus won for us at the cross. Jesus goes on to say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was actually referring there to an old story from the book of Numbers, that austere wilderness book in the Old Testament that most people kind of skip over because there are long numbers and that kind of thing, but very important book, a very important account where the Israelites, once again, as they had so often done before, are complaining against God and against Moses. Why? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness, they say? And it's astounding of course, how forgetful they were because God had already done so much for them. He had heard their pleas when they were slaves in Egypt. He had brought them out of their bondage with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He had sustained them every day in the wilderness with manna from heaven, quail from on high, water from the rock. He was leading them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and yet they were ungrateful. They complained and complained. Because we always have to remember that the story of Israel is always actually our story too because we are so often 
I'm grateful for God's rich blessings, material and spiritual. We forget his promises. We act like practical atheists, <laughs> as if God did not exist. and We had to kind of manage things on our own. We are so ungrateful. The Israelites complained against God and against Moses. And on this occasion, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died, which kind of got their attention. And they came to Moses and they said, we have sinned, pray for us that the Lord would take away the serpents from us. So Moses, old Moses, who is now almost 120 years old and has been listening to the Israelites complaining for 40 years in the wilderness, old Moses prays again for the people, intercedes for the people as he had so often done before. And the Lord answers, make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he looks at the snake on the pole, will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he looked up at the bronze serpent, would live. And now Jesus takes that old account, that old story from the Bible that Nicodemus knew well, and he applies it to himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. Let me ask you a question. What did the Israelites see when they looked up at that snake on the pole? Well, they saw a snake, and so they were seeing the serpent, the old evil foe, Satan. They were reminded of Satan's work among them, they were reminded of their own sinful rebellion. They were reminded of God's wrath and punishment, the fiery serpents that had been sent among them. And yet, paradoxically, as they looked up at that snake on the pole, they were also seeing the very means of their salvation because everyone who was bitten and looked up at the snake, believing God's promise, would live. And now Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What do we see when we look at Jesus on the cross? Well, we see a snake on the pole. <laughs> Strangely, we see our sin because the Bible says God made him to be sin for us. Hard for me to comprehend. Jesus, the innocent one, became sin on the cross. All of our sin, the sin of all humanity, all of our ingratitude, all of our stupid selfishness, all of our stubbornness, it was all laid on Jesus. He absorbed it all. He took it all, and the wrath and punishment of God were laid upon him. As we look at, the, at, the, at, the, at Jesus on the cross, we see the snake on the pole. We see our sin. And yet much more important, we see right into the heart of God. We see the triune God's astonishing love, his astonishing love for sinners 
like us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave him not just to be wrapped up in swaddling clothes in Bethlehem, but gave him to be ridiculed, rejected, abused, crucified, lifted up, the snake on the pole. St. Paul writes, Christ died for the ungodly. He writes, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world. Here we see love in the giving of his son. It's so important because in our culture, we don't even know what love is anymore. (laughs) We've forgotten what love is all about. Here's love, Jesus on the cross. As most of you, uh, I think, know by now, uh, Pastor Feeney and Vicar Debner are uh, just headed on their way to uh, Germany for the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation choir tour. They've left me here with you people, um, but uh, we'll do the best we can. Uh, as, uh, as, as I think about it, I know that many of you are going to uh, Germany this year too, or wish you could go to Germany, Holy Land, you know, so on. Uh, but it's probably too late to make reservations if you haven't already done that. So I just thought this morning I might bring to your attention another option for your uh, summer celebrations and your summer, summer travels. You could actually also go to uh, San Francisco, specifically to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood for the uh, 50th anniversary celebration of the Summer of Love, which is taking place this year. Uh, the Summer of Love, 1967, when Haight-Ashbury became the epicenter of America's 1960s counterculture movement, the Summer of Love. Those of you who are a bit younger and don't remember these things, don't know about these things, may want to ask your parents or maybe even your grandparents, you know, what they were doing, where they were during the Summer of Love. The Wall Street Journal recently ran an article concerning this in which they interviewed one of the tour guides out there from San Francisco, Haight-Ashbury, a tour guide from the Flower Power Walking Tour, a tour guide who goes by the name of Stannis Floride. Stannis Floride. And Stannis Floride in the interview said, The Haight-Ashbury was the product of teen rebellion against 1950s regimentation. Some of you remember being regimented in the 1950s, I'm sure. And uh, protest against the Vietnam War. It It was seen as a threat against the establishment, but ultimately had a profound influence on American culture, which I suppose it possibly did. More than 100,000 students, musicians, and others flocked to San Francisco for a summer of uh, revelry and drug-enhanced communion, the summer of love. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. If you're going to San Francisco, you're going to find some gentle people there. Of course, what Stannis Floride did not mention was that uh, dozens of flower children went to area hospitals every week with drug overdoses. And this was not mentioned either by Timothy Leary, the Harvard professor who crisscrossed the country urging students to turn on, tune in, and drop out and presumably go to San Francisco. Lots of kids that summer were looking for something, 
looking for love, looking for life, looking for something. But the summer of love turned out to be a great fraud, a summer of self-indulgence leading only to misery and death, much like the sinful rebellion of the Israelites out there in the wilderness. Nicodemus, that old Pharisee, was very far removed from the flower children of the 1960s. It would be hard to think of anybody much more removed from the flower children than Nicodemus the Pharisee. And yet, strangely enough, Nicodemus seemingly was looking for something that his, that his Pharisaical righteousness could not provide. Looking for the reality of life, looking for love, the love of God that he couldn't really find in his own righteousness, his own self-attained righteousness. And unexpectedly that night, he met the creator of life, the giver of life, the source of life, the source of love. And as he listened to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was even then at work drawing him into the arms of the Heavenly Father, drawing old Nicodemus to the cross, which actually is exactly where Nicodemus wound up at the end, taking down the body of Jesus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, taking down the body of Jesus, laying the body in the new tomb, awaiting the day of resurrection, Easter. And today, in the quiet of this hour, your Father speaks to you. He gave his son for you, Jesus. And now his word in your ears, his body and blood in your mouth. Jesus, the wind of the spirit still blows. God loved the world so that he gave his only son, the lost to save, that all who would in him believe should everlasting life receive. Be of good cheer, for God's own Son forgives all sins that you have done. And justified by Jesus' blood, your baptism grants the highest good. If you are sick, if death is near, this truth your troubled heart can cheer. Christ Jesus saves your soul from death. That is the firmest ground of faith. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep your hearts to life everlasting. Amen.